Heavenly Father, this morning we seek to approach a subject that is so deep and so moving and so overwhelming. We beg you for your grace that by the power of your Spirit you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our minds, that you would open up our hearts to receive this incredible message from your word. Heavenly Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would be gracious to speak through me, that you would use me as an instrument and a mouthpiece at this time to powerfully communicate the glories of your love to your church here today, and that by your grace, you would cause this church, this body that you've planted here in Cambrian Park to hear it, to receive it, to be impacted by it, to be changed by it, to be amazed by it, and to respond to it in all of the ways that we ought to. Lord, transform our lives, grow us in our relationship with you, cause us to see you and to know you more this time, and most of all, glorify yourself, both in the preaching and in the effect that it has on us. We ask that you would do this for your own name's sake, and know that it is impossible apart from the power of your Spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to do this during this time. It's in your name. Amen. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning from the pulpit. I hope you have right expectations this morning. I'm convicted Sunday after Sunday for oftentimes coming into church and not really expecting much, which is so horrible. Because what happens every single Sunday is if, if we're being faithful as a church, God's word, the gospel, his truth is being proclaimed, it's going out. And that should radically change us. It should excite us. I'm so excited right now. I'm going to have to do my best to, to refrain um, the passion from only coming out you know, at parts that it's appropriate. Otherwise, it would be too overwhelming. But I hope, I hope that we have you know, right hopes. I hope we have you know, right expectations of, of what's going to happen here, which is going to be hearing God's word, hearing the glories of his truth proclaimed, and by his grace, rightly responding to it. So right now, we're in between series, which is always a wonderful time because that means that we get to pick to choose on whatever we're going to preach. So we just finished off our series in Joel, which ended last week with, with a sermon pretty heavy on judgment. In fact, the entire series was pretty heavy on judgment. And so this morning I chose to preach on God's radical love. But I want to do it in a unique way. I wanted to do it in a way that you perhaps have never heard it before. We're a Reformed church. And what that means is that we practice and we preach Reformed theology, which is the theology that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So for those of you who are in our church history class, you know that in the 16th century, you had guys like Martin Luther and Zwingli who broke off from the Catholic Church, said, you know, the, the church is, is wrong in a lot of areas, and we need to separate from them now. And then you had uh, John Calvin come along. He was a second-generation reformer, and he kind of gave shape to this new theology, the theology of the Protestant movement. And so when we say that we're a Reformed church, it means that we follow the Calvinist tradition. That means that the theology that Calvin espoused, that Calvin made popular, is the theology that we preach and we maintain today. Now that theology, Calvinism, is the same thing as Reformed theology, and they're also sometimes referred to as the doctrines of grace. Lots of words for basically the same thing. But it's not complicated. These doctrines are very simple truths. In fact, they're some of the most fundamental truths that we believe as a church. They're what sets us apart from a lot of other uh, Protestant denominations today. The theology is often summarized in an acronym that you're probably familiar with. It's TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity, that man is totally sinful. 
The U stands for unconditional election, that God chooses people unconditionally. L stands for limited atonement or specific atonement. I for irresistible grace. And P for the perseverance of the saints. That's TULIP. Remember TULIP. It's a, it's a very helpful acronym. It's every reformer's favorite flower. And it's useful to contrast to the opposite theology, which is known as Arminianism, which believes that man's not totally sinful, that God doesn't choose people unconditionally, that Christ's uh, atonement was universal, applied to everyone, that God's grace is resistible, and lastly, that there's no guarantee that if you're saved, you'll always be saved, that you'll persevere till the end. Um, so that's Calvinism for you. That's what we believe as a church. Um, but there is, there is something that I, I really dislike about Calvinism. Um, it's certainly true. We believe it's biblical as a church, and this has been, this theology has, has been vetted historically and, and, uh, and stood strong over time against many challenges and many obstacles. But you know what I hate most about Calvinism? It's perception. What is your impression of Calvinism? That was one of the questions I, I had asked in the email that we sent out on Saturday. What do you think most people's impression is of Calvinism? If you've ever talked to people about Reformed theology before, or perhaps you grew up in the, in the public school system, Calvinism was usually painted in a very cold, strict, kind of callous, hard light. People look and they think, that's wooden, that's antiquated, that's so, that's so rigid. How could, you, how could you believe in something you know, so cold-hearted as that? And yet, you know, it's probably more so the Calvinists that are at fault for giving this impression of Calvinism than it is Calvinism itself. But I personally am absolutely convinced that Calvinism is the most romantic set of doctrines conceivable. And so it's my goal this morning to make you feel rightly about this. I believe that they've had the totally wrong effect on us. I believe that it should do just the opposite. I want to convince you that the doctrines of grace embody the highest form of romance that you could possibly imagine. And so I want to look at perhaps the most concise summary of these doctrines in Scripture for our illumination. Um, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 30. That's a heed read. This is a very famous verse. It's often known as the golden chain. And the reason why it's called the golden chain is because each of these steps, each of these points are all linked together. And so it gives us a big picture of how God relates to us in his sovereignty and in his love. Um, I want you to see, when you read this verse, do you see it exuding romance? Do you see it exuding love? If not, we're reading it wrong. And it's not out of context either. Romans chapter 8, he's talking about the, uh, um, about our, our hope, our present hope, in light, of, uh, in light of sufferings, how it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to come, how God works out all things for the good of those who love him. And then he talks about this sovereign relationship even more, saying that, quote, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're going to walk through the five points of Calvinism. Uh, they're all right here in this verse. Um, and by God's grace, they'll have the right effect on us, perhaps for the first time, breaking the mold that they've had for, for centuries in the church. These, these doctrines should captivate us. They should overwhelm our hearts. They should cause us to feel the highest love conceivable from God and cause us to, roll, ca cause us to fall radically in love with our heavenly lover. Um, and we don't need to work hard to do this. We're just going to look at the verse. We're going to break open the nut. And by God's grace, just showing you these things will cause you to, to see all of this, that you will hear these old truths in a new way. So let's begin. I hope this is going to be a shorter sermon. Don't be uh, concerned by the fact that there's five points. These are going to be 
five short points. Um, hopefully there'll be five short sweet points. Um, I want you to get to, to savor these truths, to see truly how wonderful they are, and by our grace, let them warm your heart and set your love for God aflame. So starting with the first point, total depravity. We're going to start with the object of God's romance. Look first at Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who are these people? Who are these these people that are the object of God's romance, of his pursuit, of his predestination, his calling, and his justification? It's you. It's me. It's everybody that's part of his true church around the world. That's who he's talking about here. Now, I want you to notice, he does say some other things about this church, which is important for us to understand. You can turn your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1, and we'll see how he describes us. Get a better picture of ourselves, hopefully uh, the picture that, that Paul wants us to have of ourselves, that even more importantly, God wants us to have of ourselves. What kind of bride are we? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 29. This is talking about us. It's talking about all people. Paul says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's who Paul is talking about here. That's you. That's the description. And in case you think he's just talking about the world here, turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah, starting in verse 10, when he says, quote, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Not you, not me, not the best person that you know, no one righteous. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless there is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if we look at the Old Testament, we see that it has been like this since the beginning, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, before God destroys the world with a flood. Listen to these in incredible words that he says. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is total depravity. That's the first point of Calvinism. It's that simple. You are totally, completely, utterly, absolutely sinful. Through and through. Completely. All of us. Only sinful. What's romantic about total depravity? 
you might be asking. If we have to ask that question, we have missed the entire story. The entire, the whole thing hinges on total depravity. Think about this. If you ask a young person who wants to get married, what do you look for in a spouse? What are they going to tell you? Perhaps they, they look for wealth. They want someone with lots of money. I want someone who's funny, someone who can make me laugh. I want someone who's popular. I want someone who can provide. I want someone who's faithful. I want someone who loves me back. I hear that so much. You know, I love him because he loves me. Think about that. Are those the things that God looks for in you? Is that why God loves you? Does he love you because you're wealthy? Does he love you because you can offer him so much? Does he love you because you're so intelligent or because you're so funny or so cute or so beautiful? Surely people don't look for cheaters in their spouses. Surely they're not looking for this venomous asps on their their lips. Surely they're not attracted to the infidelity or feet that are swift to shed blood or ruin and misery. That's not what people look for in a spouse. And yet who does God court? Who does God love? The prince of heaven goes into the streets. He goes into the gutters and in the sewers he finds you, the totally depraved, vile, wretched sinner, wallowing in your sin, disgusting, vile, completely unworthy, completely undeserving, the one who doesn't want him. That's who God goes to. You see, total depravity makes God's love so extraordinary. It's ordinary to love people who are worthy of our love. It's extraordinary to love those who aren't deserving of it. That's part of what makes God, God's love so profoundly romantic. It's that you don't deserve it. It's God marrying you. And the Bible makes this clear. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again in Ephesians 2, Verses 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of what? The great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, true love is greatest when it's least deserved. Now let's look at, at the next point, unconditional election. So why did he love you? Obviously, it wasn't because of your works, and it wasn't because of your smarts, and it wasn't because of your religion, or your morality, or your free choice. We sung in the hymn, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that can never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. There was nothing in you of value. Don't kid yourself about this. You do not deserve love, let alone the love of God. And so we look at the verse again from Romans chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. I love that word predestined. In the Greek, it's actually a combination of two words. The first is pro, the second is horizo. Pro means before. And horizon is the same word from which you get the word horizon. What it essentially means is that God marks out boundaries beforehand. He sets limits. He establishes lines. That means that before anything ever happened, before God created this universe, he marks you out. He sets you apart from the rest of the crowd. He set his sights on you. See, so often in romance movies, we have this theme of, of love and destiny, and oh, they were, just, they were destined to be together, and there was nothing that they could do to keep each other apart. There's a lot of truth in that. True love is destined. True love is destiny. In fact, it's destined before anything else ever was. 
Now, should that make you feel special that God chose you? The answer is yes. I hate it when people say, you know, you shouldn't feel special just because God chose you and didn't choose someone else. Of course you, you should feel special. Of all of the people in the world, God chose you. He could have chosen anyone, and yet he chose you. That's part of what makes marriage so special. I've told Sarah many times that if, if you could line up all of the women in the world, all of the women from uh, human history past to human history future, I would choose you every single time. And that's true. I really mean that. And that's the same way with God's love for you. Of all of the people in the world, if he could choose anyone, he chose you. Now, the real question is, should that make you feel proud? And the answer to that one is absolutely not. See, God is, is selective, and it is specific to you. And of all of the billions and billions of people, you're his choice. You're the one he elected. And he set his heart on you, but it is not because you met any conditions. He chose you before anything ever happened. That's why it's called unconditional choice. That's why it's called unconditional election. He picked you not because you were lovable, but because he is a loving God. He is romantic. And so this glorifies himself. It reveals and magnifies himself. That's why he did it. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 through 6, quote, that God predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to what? Our good works? No. According to what? Our smarts? No. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is so romantic. True love is unconditional. What kind of love isn't unconditional? A cheap love, I would imagine. Think of wedding vows that say, you know, I will love you until you're unhealthy. I will love you unless you lose all of our wealth. I will love you until things get hard or until things get bad or as long as you behave or as long as you love me back. That isn't romantic at all. Everyone knows that the highest kind of romance is unconditional romance. That's what's epitomized in marriage. That's why we say things like, I take you to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And church, God says that to you. You are his bride. Those are his words to us. That is his covenant to us. He has set his affection upon you unconditionally. That means no matter what, before he made the universe, before he set all the stars in the sky, before he laid the foundations for the ocean and filled it with water, before he planted the first tree or created the first rock, he decided to set his love upon you, and he did it unconditionally. We have such an incredible picture of God's romance with us in the story of Hosea. I want to read you some verses. It's a living portrait for us of God's love in all of these ways. Listen from Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Most of you know the story. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Gomer is you in this story. Gomer is the people of God. Gomer is the unfaithful, the adulterous, totally depraved whore, the prostitute. That's you. That's me, apart from Christ. And yet, that is the one that God chooses. That's the one he says, Hosea, go marry her. 
Because I want your love for her to reflect my love for my people. Choose her. Marry her. So chapter 2. The story continues. God says, plead with your mother. This is talking to Gomer's children now. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In other words, she says, I'm going after all of my lovers. I'm, I'm giving away my body. I'm, 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 uh, I'm giving away my, my sexuality for food and for drink and for money. So God says in verse 13, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. That's us. We're the ones who forsook our heavenly lover. But he chose us, and he was faithful to us, and he loved us even though we were not only unloving to him, we were hateful to him. We were unfaithful to him, but he chose us unconditionally. And so now we move to the next link in the golden chain. We're going to go out of order a little bit. I know, um, I know we're supposed to go from unconditional election to limited atonement, but we're actually going to skip to irresistible grace. And uh, it's not that we don't have anything against the TULIP acronym. It's just that Paul's order is a little bit different than Calvin's order. And Paul came first, so we're going to follow him. But starting in verse 14, we're actually going to continue in Hosea. Listen to the next part of the story. So here you have God. He's chosen to marry you, the whore, the prostitute. And it continues, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Oh, I love verse 14. This is such a precious word. God says that he will allure her. What do you expect? You married a prostitute. You would expect something about God divorcing her, something about God judging her, something about God sending her away, finding a better spouse. Instead, he what? He courts her. He dates her. He takes her out, brings her into a beautiful place. He speaks tenderly to her. This is, this is the letters. This is the poems. This is the songs. This is the gifts and the times of service, the deepest, most intimate expressions of love. That's what God does to his bride. That's what he does to this prostitute that he's married he speaks to her. He speaks good news. And by the Spirit, it actually works. It's effectual. And he tries to win her heart over. Now, this is his wooing. This is his calling. It's what we call his call. And we see in verse, uh, in, in going back to Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he what? He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. In other words, that those whom he unconditionally sets his love upon, he calls and he pursues with all of his heart. And what is the manner of this calling? It is irresistible. It's unstoppable. You can't resist this love. Those God seeks to win, he never fails. When I was courting Sarah, which actually wasn't that long ago, about a, a year or two ago, um, I was seriously concerned that we would not get married, that I was, I was going to ruin our courtship, that I was going to ruin the, the one chance that God had given me at getting married. And uh, I had actually, I had really good reasons to believe that. On our first date, um, we got together, and, and, and her friend was with us, 
And uh, we met up at Starbucks. She had just driven up from L.A., and I could not talk for the life of me. I felt like everything I was saying was, was the most unnatural, the most awkward thing I could possibly say. And then we didn't even have dinner. She went home to her house. I went home to, to my house for dinner. And then we got back together again, and we went to go play mini golf in Santa Cruz. And the whole time, it was just it was so, I was, I was so mortified. I went home, I told my parents, I thought, I have, I have wrecked the, you know, the best opportunity God's ever given me in my life. And that night, you know, we're, we're um, getting back in the car, and, and uh, there, Sarah and her friend are in the car, and um, we're backing out the parking lot, and I drive the car into a pole. I back it up into a pole in the parking lot at night. The, the car hits the pole. Both of the girls screamed. I got out of the car. There was a massive dent in, in, in the back of the bumper, um, and then uh, we're, we're coming home. We went and we watched a movie or something. And um, the whole night was just was so awkward. I thought, you know, for sure this courtship is over. I, I don't know how she could possibly stay with me after this. And perhaps if it was someone other than Sarah, if it was someone less gracious or less caring or less loving and less forgiving, it wouldn't have. But that's not the way it is with God. If God pursued Sarah, and he did, he always wins. His courtship never fails. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't blow it. And I'm so thankful for that. When Jesus pursued her, there was no chance of that courtship failing. When Jesus pursued me, when he pursued you, and he does in all of us different ways, he wins us every single time. He does it perfectly. His call is perfect. His willing is perfect. His courtship is irresistible. And we've all experienced this differently. For me, it was, it was a very slow kind of courtship. I grew up in the church, and then in high school, there was a long period of time where, where I really didn't, I didn't read the scriptures at all. They were, they were, you know, very, they were essentially dead to me. And then, you know, coming out of high school, for whatever reason, in college, God, by his grace, just, I, I, I just picked up the word, probably for fun, uh, to read the Bible. And I read it for, for five minutes tops, and then set it down for perhaps another week. And then, you know, start reading again, another five minutes here, and then ten minutes here, and then fifteen minutes here. And slowly but surely, God was drawing me to himself, and eventually, I found that that fifteen minutes was growing into an hour. And then a few months later, I was staying up almost all night until the, to, until the early hours of the morning, reading and praying for, for six to seven hours a night. Couldn't stop, couldn't get enough of it. That was how he drew me. And he draws all of us differently. But the one thing that all of these have in common the one thing that all of his courtships with us have in common is that he never fails. If he goes to draw someone, he always wins their heart. It's irresistible. Imagine if his love was resistible. That's not romantic at all. What kind of romance movie ends with the man failing to get the woman? Not one that would be popular, not one that you would watch or enjoy. On the contrary, true love is irresistible. He sees the wretch, he sets his affection on her unconditionally, he woos her heart, and we always say yes. If he proposes to you, the answer to God is never no. It's perfect, unassailable romance. And as he says in Hosea, those he gives the door of hope to always walk through. It's irresistible. You will walk through it. We continue in verse 16. This is so glorious. And in that day, declares the Lord, He's speaking now to, um, to Israel, who's represented by Gomer. You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, so precious. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
And then chapter 3, the Lord said to me, this is Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so Hosea says, I brought her I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And that's how it ends. This relationship is made right. It's justified. And this kind of justification is essential to God's romance. In fact, it's the next link in our golden chain. And perhaps you could say it's the climax of the story. So we'll move on to the uh, third point of Calvinism, which for us will be the fourth point, limited atonement. Going back to Romans 8, we find that those whom he called, he what? He also justified. You see, there's one horrible, awful problem with this story. And it's this simple. God cannot marry you. He cannot marry you. And when we go back to Hosea chapter 2, we see this. God says, plead with your mother, plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. What? Verse 3, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Punishment, verse 13, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. Perhaps we forgot something in the story here. We got so carried away in the romance of God's unconditional election and his irresistible grace that we forgot the fact that we're totally depraved and that our depravity and our whoredom and our prostitution against God has a price. We have a debt to pay and that debt is nothing short of the wrath of God. Now this description in Hosea, it's strikingly similar to the descriptions that we see in the New Testament of an eternal hell to, to kill someone with thirst reminds me, reminds me of, of the rich man in the parable of Lazarus crying out for Abraham to dip his finger in the water so that he can cool his tongue. And we're talking about a punishment of, of a barren wasteland, of being made desolate, of being made nothing, total, utter destruction. And that is what we get for despising so greatly the God of love. It's our just desert, it's our right desert, and it's the penalty that must be paid. And here we find this love story's greatest test. Because you, you who God has pledged himself to before the creation of the world, you must die for your sin. But the problem is that he loves you so deeply. He loves you so unfathomably, so incredibly much that he cannot let that happen. He cannot let his beloved die. He cannot let his beloved suffer an eternity in hell. Whatever it takes, whatever it has to do, that's what he's going to do to save you from that. And you see, every love story has a great trial. And there's no greater trial than this. There's no greater obstacle to overcome than death and hell itself. And so what did your heavenly husband do? He did the unthinkable. We have a great story, a tragic and heartbreaking story at that. In May 2011, there was a massive tornado that swept through Joplin, Missouri. And there was a young couple there, one of many affected by the disaster. The man's name was Don Lansaw, and he owned a machine shop in Joplin, and his wife worked as an administrator at Missouri Southern State University. 
She was 25 years old at the time. They had been married for six years, childhood sweethearts, and the young couple had plans to start a family. And in May 2011, a 200-mile-an-hour tornado struck Joplin, and it was coming towards their home. The husband, Don Lansaw, took his wife, and they went into the safest room, which was their bathroom, and he put her in the tub, and he covered her with his body. And his wife, Bethany, describes the experience of the tornado coming onto the house and it started to tear the home apart. And all around them, the destruction and the ruin was falling down upon them, and yet her husband, Don, covered her with his own body. She says in a tearful interview with NBC's Brian Williams, quote, he got on top of me to take the brunt of most of, most of it. And she said, as the house was ripping apart, and as the winds died down, that she saw that her husband was turning blue. And she flagged down an ambulance to try and get help for him, to try and, and, and take him somewhere. It, it was too late. So that he just had so much love in his heart that he's my hero. That this man made the ultimate sacrifice for his wife. That tornado in Joplin killed at least 125 people that Sunday. But she was not one of them. Her life was spared because her husband, her love, was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for her. He gave up his own life for her. As the winds were tearing the house down apart, he puts her in the tub and he covers her with his body. In church, the beloved, that is the husband that Jesus is to you. That you, as a prostitute, as a whore, should have been thrown out into the tornado to have been destroyed. But instead, Jesus takes you and he puts you in the tub and he covers you with himself. And he lets the tornado of God's wrath beat down on his back instead of yours. He gives his own life for you. He was destroyed for you. The death that you deserve to die for your sin, he paid for himself. He will not let you perish. He cannot let you go. Even if it cost him his own life, it cost him that. It cost him everything. And so we sing. We sing the, we sing the song, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Jesus Christ, our heavenly lover, did just that for you in his life, death on the cross, and resurrection. That you deserve to be smited off the face of the earth, and instead, your lover from heaven, who set his affection upon you before he even created the universe, steps in and takes the wrath of God in your place. He comes in to rescue you, the damsel in distress, the Prince of Heaven coming down in the greatest fantasy, in the greatest fairy tale of all time, comes in to die, to let the dragon slay him instead of slaying you so that you could be saved. You see, true love is sacrificial. That's the thing that great love stories are made of. They're made of great sacrifice. And so we should expect to find the best love story, the best romance, is filled with the best sacrifice. Because you see, love is desiring the welfare of somebody else above everything else in life, above your own interests, above the interests of others, desiring their welfare 
exceedingly, and above all, is the greatest form of love. And this is who God is. He's the man that dies for his bride. He has, he has the true love that really gives it all, that there's nothing that he wouldn't sacrifice for you. And here we find Jesus saying things like, you know, there's no greater love than uh, for a man to lay down his life for his friends. That's so true. The greatest romance is someone giving his life for someone else. And Jesus not only gave his life, he suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell for you. And not only that, but I think we could say that true love is specific. That the tornado of God's wrath that he endured for you, he endured for all who trust alone in him. He did it for all those who he loves specifically. That he didn't die for anyone, and he didn't die for everyone. He died for specific people. He died for his love. He died for his bride. He died for you. And that's why it's so romantic. Perhaps the most romantic doctrine of all of these is limited atonement, is particular atonement, specific salvation. Jesus specifically saves you. He specifically sacrificed himself for you, for me. And then last but not least, we find that the story isn't over yet. The last doctrine of tulip, perseverance of the saints. We have one more link to go in the golden chain. Romans 8.30 again. We read at the end that those whom he justified, he also glorified. I love this. True love ends happily ever after. True love perseveres to the end. Perseveres all the way to glory. God's romance won't end in divorce. It won't end in separation. No one experiences this radical romance, this sacrificial love, and then rejects it. That's not the way the story goes. You might hear people say that they used to be Christians, that they used to be part of the church. Perhaps they grew up in church, and now they don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe in his word. They've walked away from the faith. What does that mean? If you have left God, it means that you were never with God in the first place. Because there has never, ever, ever been someone that has been loved by God and saved by God that has walked away from that romance. In fact, this last link of the golden chain is so certain. Look at it. It's in the past tense. We're talking about something here in the future, and yet he speaks as if it's already happened. That you already have been glorified, that so certain is your glorification, so certain is the fact that you will endure all the way till the end into heaven, that we're going to say that this has already happened. It's so sure. You cannot, cannot fall out of love with God. Now, this isn't saying that all of those God saves are immediately perfect. It's perseverance of the saints, not perfection of the saints. There will be hardships, and there will be trials along the way, and your relationship with God will be tested, but he will forgive you, and you will continue to grow in your relationship with him, and neither of you will ever, ever leave each other. You're the inseparable couple. We read in the following verses in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's romance. That's romance. 
If you don't think that's romance, I don't know what you think is. True love never lets go. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. No one can snatch you out of the love of Christ. He will hold you fast, and you will hold fast to him. You leave this world, and you cleave to him. So we find him saying, John chapter 10, verse 28, that I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they shall never perish. No one, nothing can snatch them out of my hand. You see, those he calls, he justifies, and he doesn't lose any of those. And those he, he chose, he wins, and those he wins, he saves, and those he saves, he keeps forever in perfect love. It's the perfect love story. There's no failings, there's no mess-ups, it's perfect, pure romance, complete, unstoppable romance. The total unbroken chain, every link, every time, with everyone, never fails. Literally, the most radical romance and love imaginable. And the best, you could say, ending. The best happily ever after possible. For the chain completes with glorification. We say, we sing in the hymn, you know, a love that will not let me go. I am his, what, forever. We're his forever. You see, what, what I hate most about marriage, it's a sad thought, and for those of you who are married, you can relate to this, that, that our marriage one day will end. That marriage here is such a glorious, such a wonderful gift from God. And yet, it's till death do us part. We're husbands and wives, but only in this world. And then when we pass on, when we move on from here, when one of us passes away, that relationship, that glorious love, that marriage ends. But that is not the case with our marriage with God. Nothing stops our marriage with God. It doesn't end. It doesn't terminate at some point. This covenant, this relationship, this love lasts forever. True romance, and we all know this, true romance never dies. True romance never ends. Perhaps we could say it ends or maybe it begins with the wedding feast. And you all, if you're saved, if you've trusted in Christ, if you turn from your sins and you trust only and wholly in him to save you, you have a wedding in your future because Jesus, this heavenly, this heavenly lover, is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for you. And that's a real day in the future. That's coming soon. Either when you die or when he comes again in glory, he comes back. And this is what we read in Revelation 19, verse 6. Amazing. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, imagine that, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's you. Now adorned in the glorious righteous deeds of Christ, we read, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How true. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Amen. Blessed are all those who are invited to the wedding marriage of the Lamb. Christ and his bride wed happily ever after, forever, eternally, in glory, the perseverance of the saints results in glorification and it lasts for all of eternity. Never ends. 
I hope you see the romance of Calvinism. Romans 8.30, let me read it to you one more time. Feel this with me. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do they not embody the highest love imaginable? Your total depravity, God's unconditional election, his specific salvation for you, his irresistible grace, and the fact that we will all persevere to the end, that, that is romance. That is romance. In fact, it makes me think of how disgusting Arminianism really is. When you think of the opposite of all of these things, that it is opposite this on every point, that you're not totally sinful, that God loves you, that you're not really that bad, that you're kind of good, that there's something worthy in love for you, that diminishes the greatness of God's love. That God chooses you not unconditionally, but he chooses you because you actually did something good, because you actually did something that was worthy of him choosing you. That, that weakens the amazingness and the, the, the romantic unconditionalness of it all. Limited atonement, that you see that Jesus didn't just die for his bride, that he died for everyone. And that he didn't just actually save them, that he just made it possible to save them? What kind of sacrifice is that? That's not for anyone. For, for that matter, anyone could have not been saved. Jesus could have died for nothing. And how dare you call the love of God resistible? How dare you say that the love of God is not irresistible? Saying something like that makes me almost think that you may have never experienced it before. And to say that, that people can fall out of love with God that you won't persevere till the end, that it doesn't end in glory every time that things happen, that, that you, you can divorce yourself from God, that you can leave him, that you can be saved one minute and not say it the next, these all ruin the romance, destroys it, decimates it. Everybody loves a good romance. This is the best. Search it, enjoy it, and realize that it's between God and you, that you are the object of this incredible romantic affair. Everything you love about romance movies is in Calvinism. You may have never heard that before, but every single thing, think about it, every single thing you enjoy and love about romance movies, you'll find in these five doctrines of grace. I want you to be overwhelmed, to be captivated by the glory of these doctrines, to meditate on them throughout the week, to share them with your family, with your friends. Don't be ashamed of Calvinism. Correct its perception. Cause people to feel rightly about these things. Do you feel that? Do you enjoy meditating on these truths as much as you should? Ask yourself this. This is a very tough question. It's a tough question for me to answer. Are you more in love with God than you are with anyone else in your life? Do you love God more than your spouse? Do you love God more than your parents, than your family, than your friends? I've had to ask myself, that was Sarah. Who do I think about more? What are my motivations for doing things? Are they mainly driven out of my love for her? Are they mainly driven out of my love for God? Who do I prefer to meditate on? Who do I buy gifts for? Who do I spend time serving most? It should be both. You should love your spouse. You should be in love with your spouse. You should continue to grow in your love with your spouse. But supremely, God must be our first love. We must be more madly, radically in love with him than we are with anyone else. Because through Christ, Christ has that love for you. And so in all of our desires, in all of our thoughts, in all of our words, in all of our actions, it should be driven primarily out of our love for him, to please him, to glorify him. 
if that is not the case with you, then draw near to God. And he promises that all those who draw near to him, he himself will draw near to you. You're a fool for neglecting the most romantic relationship imaginable. Fall in love with him. Seek his face. If you have him, you have everything. You might not get married in this life. You might not make lots of money. You might not have lots of friends. But if you have Jesus Christ, you truly have everything. And you have the most romantic, incredible, glorious love relationship conceivable. And you will spend all of eternity tracking him down. I want to end this sermon with a, a retranslation of this verse from Romans 30. This is Kirk's translation. And it's translating it with an emphasis on the romance of these doctrines. Translating these through a lens of love. Listen. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You, the most unworthy person, the king of heaven set his unconditional love upon before the universe existed. And you, whom he chose, he wooed irresistibly and won your heart. And you, whom he courted, he sacrificed his life to save from the most awful hell. And you, whom he died for, he promises to keep for all of eternity in the most heavenly, happily ever after. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot even begin to thank you for the great love that you have shown us. That we are so undeserving and so indescribably unworthy of. And yet before the foundations of the world, you marked us out. You set us apart. And you determined to set your affection upon us unconditionally. And then by your grace, you wooed us, you courted us, you drew us to yourself and your love is so incredible and so irresistible. And then, Father, you sacrificed your own son. You died in our place so that we could be saved. No greater sacrifice has ever been made than the sacrifice that you made for us, O oh Lord. And then we are so incredibly, overwhelmingly grateful for your promise to preserve us and to cause us to persevere all the way till the end that our relationship might end with the wedding feast of the Lamb. You might be glorified forever and ever in our romantic pursuit of you and your romantic pursuit of us. We ask that you would cause these glorious doctrines of grace to have the right effect on us, that they would warm our heart and cause us to love you more, to be overwhelmed by your love, and for that to rightly change our lives. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, for your own glory in us and in this church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.